It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This week on episode 221 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we're going to discuss continuous glucose monitors. Continuous glucose monitors are electronic devices that measure the concentration of blood sugar or blood glucose and provide the value to its wearer. Although continuous glucose monitors were initially designed to assist in the clinical management of both insulin-dependent and non-insulin-dependent diabetes, there is now an interest in the application of real-time glucose monitoring in both the biohacking and athletic communities. Are glucose monitors the key to personalized nutrition? Do they help improve eating habits? And will they unlock the next level in athletic performance? All that and more on this week's episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13 millimeter thick, four inch wide belt for powerlifting like me, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also custom make belts to your specifications. I bought and paid for a new belt from them last year and been very impressed with both the performance and quality. All products are made in the USA. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high quality, versatile clothing for inside and outside the gym for both men and women. I'm absolutely in love with their fleet pants and core shorts. If you know me, you know I'm pretty picky about the stuff I train in, and both of these items are super comfortable and super durable with the type of training that I do. I've also been wearing their Rise Tee in and outside of the gym, which fits better than more expensive shirts I've tried before. Viore also sources sustainable materials for their products and offsets their carbon footprint 100%. Head over to the website, viori.com backslash barbell to get 20% off your first order. All right. We're here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast with the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, I'm doing all right. What's up with how's, you? How's your blood sugar? Um, I am several hours postprandial at this point, so it should be back down to more or less normal. We hope. We hope. <laughs> uh, although there was a, there was a study on, uh, and we'll get into this later, of course, but I, I found it interesting. It was like 10 sub-elite athletes. They routinely trained between 16 to 15 hours per week, resting heart rates under 60 or whatever. And when they wore these continuous glucose monitors, um, 70% of the time they were actually above 101 milligrams per deciliter. So like kind of in that impaired range. And you're like, look why is this the case? So yeah, maybe, maybe some similar autonomic issues that, that drive that with training load and sleep restriction and things like that. That's what I'm saying. You're just probably training so hard yeah, and you're so fit. <laughs> <laughs> the pendulum has swung the other way. Uh, super excited for this one. Super excited to have you uh, guys. Before we get into this week's podcast, make sure to check out our new content. We've got a new like how to train for power in the rehab setting and also just training for power in general. That's by Dr. Derek Miles it's on the website. A bunch of other new articles, uh, liver function tests, headaches and exercise, etc. Make sure you check those out. New YouTube videos are full Q&A from Los Angeles is now up. It's like an hour plus of nerd ASMR on on YouTube. Also a few training vlogs for those that are interested in watching me navigate the commercial gym scene and like lift things. Um, and then, yeah, we've got new seminars available uh, for you to sign up to attend. So first, our two-day health and performance seminar. That's with Dr. Baraki, myself, Leah, uh, Tom Capitelli. I think Alan's going to be at a few of these. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be in Brooklyn in less than a month. Um, so that's in May uh, and October will be with Dr. Untamed himself at Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California. And then in January, we'll be down under in Sydney. Actually, do you think that's, I don't know that that's an Australian accent. Like our Australian cohort is going to be like, guys, that's actually Kiwi and you're just terrible. <laughs> we'll see. You, you can hire an accent coach to prep before we go down there. I've seen that on YouTube. They're like full linguistic coaches. It's incredible. Accent. 
it yes. is insane. And not just like different country to country, but like regional dialects. And I'm like, I'm impressed. Yep. Uh, and then we also have new pain and rehab uh, seminars available for you to attend. That's with Dr. Derek Miles and our pain and rehab team in June. They'll be in Bozeman, Montana. I think, is that big sky country? I don't know. I mean, it's Montana. It looks pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably pretty. <laughs> sure. A uh, good excuse to like get a cowboy hat and like do things related <laughs> to that. And then they will be in Los Angeles at Monarch Athletic Club uh, in November. So all of those are linked in the description below. You can check that out. Really would love to have you at one of our seminars. And then finally, our university line of merchandise just dropped, uh, I believe it was three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and supplies are running low. So if you want to get some new barbell medicine gear, rep our brand in the gym, people will instantly know that you lift and you're legit which is saying something with all the gym apparel and attire available. But if you, that's really what you care about. I'm just saying you're letting other people know you're demonstrating to others. Like (laughs) I know I'm not a noob Uh, or if I am, at least I'm a smart noob. So in any case that's available as well, check out the link in the description below. All right, man, we're going to talk about blood sugar and I know, you know, managing this, measuring it, talking about it with patients. It's part of your day to day. Uh, How many, of the people admitted to your inpatient service, do you think you actually deal with blood sugar on some level? Um, on any given day, it's probably ranges between, you know, depending on the the number of patients that I have overall from 50 to 90%. <laughs> yeah. So I was gonna say like everybody, amount. you're measuring it on everybody just to like make sure. Yeah. I think the variation comes in with, you know, do they have known diabetes when they come in or not? And then sometimes even if you don't, if you have very severe critical illness, then that can lead to a lot of the same things, the fit, the underlying physiology that is similar to diabetes and can lead to abnormal blood sugar, you know, issues, um, just due to how sick the person is and all the inflammation going on from an infection or whatever the case is. So blood sugar is a very frequently checked variable, um, in the hospital. And then in patients who have diabetes or who have blood sugars that are ranging into, you know, excessively high or excessively low, then that requires us to, to intervene, to, to keep people, you know, safe. Yeah. That was always like, uh, whenever somebody was septic or whatever. Uh, so they had like this systemic infection, um, made it to the blood and, and they're, you know, relatively sick or very sick in some cases, their blood sugar be off the charts and the, mm-hmm. the attending invariably would be like, and why is their blood sugar high? And you're like, well, this systemic inflammation is actually making them more insulin resistant. And they're like, very good pat on the head. So, yeah. That's me. That's me now. <laughs> yeah. That's you, yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. All right. So let's start out with some background physiology, talking about what is blood sugar? Like, why is this a thing? We're going to do the magic school bus thing. You know, uh, but this, uh, this time, instead of like Miss Frizz, we've got Dr. Austin Baraki and myself that are driving the bus. So hold on to your butts, the old <laughs> Jurassic Park reference. So many foods contain carbohydrates, which ultimately supply energy to the cells in our body. Once ingested, carbohydrates are broken down in the gastrointestinal tract, um, principally the small intestine, um, into simple sugars like glucose. There are a few other simple sugars, but glucose is one of the big ones. In the small intestine, glucose molecules are absorbed into the bloodstream and transported to the liver and then subsequently around the body. As blood glucose levels rise, insulin, a hormone produced by the beta cells in the pancreas, goes up in response. So after eating, insulin facilitates the transportation of glucose and other nutrients from the bloodstream into cells like muscles, organs, and fat. Hooray, we've made it into a cell. That's the end of our bus ride. Like, just get off the bus now. We are inside cells. Um, So in addition 
to doing that, insulin suppresses the liver's production of new glucose, which is a process known as gluconeogenesis, just literally meaning making of new sugar, and instead promotes the storage of glucose in the form of glycogen. And that process is called glycogenesis. It also uh, facilitates the conversion and subsequent storage of glucose as fat, which is called de novo lipogenesis. Also, if anyone else was wondering about another cool function or under... I guess, underreported function of insulin. It's also a satiety hormone, a filling, you know, makes you feel full. So when people are like, I don't want my insulin levels to ever go up. It's like, well, if that were to not happen, <laughs> you'd have a tough time shuttling nutrients into the cells, storing nutrients as energy. And also the satiety response would actually be blunted. So it's not that you don't want any insulin response. You just don't want high insulin levels for too long, um, which is typically, uh, associated with people being insulin resistant. We talked about that in our metabolic syndrome podcast, our diabetes podcasts. Uh, and yeah, we'll talk about that more throughout this particular podcast. In any case, the storage of glucose as glycogen or the conversion and subsequent storage of glucose as fat are the short and long-term stores of energy in the body respectively, which allows you to go happily between meals without bonking, crashing, etc. Uh, all right. So let's talk about blood sugar ranges. So normal blood sugar ranges can vary by the type of test. So how it's evaluated and also the timing of said test in relation to the previous meal and like what was in that meal, what was in the meal before that, uh, environmental conditions, all sorts of stuff can actually contribute to, um, a range of different values. But in general, a normal fasting blood sugar, level is between 65 to 99 milligrams per deciliter. And if you're outside the United States, you might be more familiar with millimoles per liter, which is 3.6 to 5.5. Now there will be a lot of numbers in this podcast. We'll try to identify clearly like which ones are important and which ones are twuds, time wasted on useless detail, but just don't let your eyes glaze over when we talk about numbers. We'll, we'll really try to like keep that to a minimum, but this podcast, you, you got to talk, you got to talk numbers. Uh, and I, I should also say that fasting for most blood tests. So if your doctor uh, ordered a blood test that required you to be fasting, so to test your lipoprotein levels or a cholesterol panel, for example, or like a testosterone uh, check, usually it's an overnight fast. So eight to 10 hours before you ate, uh, since you ate or drank anything that had calories in it. In general, that's a typical fasting blood test. But for blood sugar, um, they've actually compared fasting values like an overnight fast versus just a three-hour window from your last meal and found no statistically significant difference um, to the three-hour fast compared to a greater than eight-hour fast in 28,000 individuals without diabetes. Now, individuals with diabetes, obviously, this is going to change the game a little bit just because by definition, if somebody's been diagnosed with diabetes, they have some level of impaired glucose metabolism. Um, yeah. I, th I think this is um, worth pointing out kind of upfront because we're going to get into some of the details around the diagnosis and the tests that can be done and how to interpret those numbers. And it's important to recognize that blood sugar is kind of what could be considered a continuous variable, meaning it can be like any number from very, very low to very, very high and anything in between. And so saying that somebody does or does not have diabetes based on this continuous variable, it's not a binary thing like they do or they don't. Um, we have to kind of set these cutoffs someplace. And so we talked about these concepts back, you know, a, a ways back when we did our screening podcast and, and talked about how do you set a, a diagnostic cutoff, 
you know, in a particular place, because you mentioned, you know, typically normal fasting blood sugars are considered between 65 and 99. Does that mean that something magic changes between 99 and 101 that suddenly now I'm more concerned that this person may have maybe approach having quote unquote prediabetes, which we'll get to or diabetes. And really, you know, nothing magic happens across that very low threshold. And additionally, there is basic lab error, you know, lab vari- variability. If you do the same same blood test, um, you know, in two different labs on two different devices, you might get sl- slightly different results. And so on one, it might be 99. On the other, it might be 101. Is that a meaningful kind of difference to interpret? And so really, if I see somebody who's fasting blood sugar is 99, um, I don't just say, oh, they're normal, you know, carry on, everything's perfect. I view this as a spectrum. And I recognize that they are at the very high end of that spectrum of what could be potentially considered normal. And I'm wondering, you know, are they, you know, more on that um, approaching kind of pre-diabetes, diabetes diabetes, uh, uh, um, end of things, or are they more convincingly down lower into the, into the normal range? So that's going to be an important concept. And that applies to all the tests that we're going to discuss is that not only is there test, you know, built-in test error, there is built-in biologic variability over time. And then additionally, we have to set these diagnostic cutoffs someplace, recognizing that any place we put it, there is going to be some degree of false positive, false negative, um, catch some people that we didn't need to catch, uh, miss some people that we didn't need to miss. It's just all tests are imperfect. And this is why interpreting tests is challenging and requires training <laughs> and uh, why I think that we remain on the boat of being you know, generally not super in favor of people going out and ordering their own blood tests that they are untrained to interpret. Yeah. I mean, even things like when people are doing finger prick, like blood sugar tests, testing different fingers or being in different like postures can all affect readings. And then, you know, as you said, like the difference between 98, 99 and a hundred to you, you know, you're taking into consideration a lot of other factors. Um, but, and that carries over to what we'll talk about uh, with the continuous glucose monitoring, particularly in healthy individuals. If, if they have a value after a meal of 110 versus 105, I'm like, is that a shoulder shrug emoji or is that like actually important where we would do something differently based on that? So all that on this week's podcast episode 221 with Dr. Austin Baraki. So, all right, let's talk about, we're going to keep going down here with testing of blood sugar. So Austin, overall, like what is the goal of testing? What are we trying to figure out here if we're administering some type of test before we talk about the individual types of tests? Yeah. So, so this is a, I think an important kind of ground level conversation. And and to your point earlier of, of when the, when the attending is asking their students <laughs> these kind of questions, this is actually quite a common one is why do I care about this blood sugar measurement? Do I care about the number itself? Most of the time, no, um, outside of physiologically dangerous situations. So if somebody's blood sugar is, you know, 20, well, they're probably comatose or probably having a low. seizure. <laughs> and if their blood sugar is, you know, 1300, they are probably also comatose. Um, but within these these kind of more moderate ranges, say if it's 80 or 150 or 250, 300 or something like that, you know, the reason we care about these numbers is because we want to identify conditions that increase the risk of complications um, or premature death that can otherwise be mitigated or uh, you know modified with treatment with intervention and so we again have to look at these blood sugar values as a spectrum and set our diagnostic cutoffs that really 
is super tricky, but aiming to minimize the chances of false positives and false negatives. I want to identify people with diabetes in whom I can confidently say you are at significantly increased risk of complications or death due to this. And we can do these things to mitigate that risk. And I also want to identify people who are physiologically, you know, normal, who do not need to worry about those things, who do not require medical intervention. But again, the problem is this is a spectrum. And so, you know, in general, when we talk about where these different tests, you know, uh, land in terms of, you know, the diagnosis, you'll hear us talk about quote unquote normal, um, in which the idea, the presumption is that we are uh, in a situation that does not have increased risk of complications or death, um, outright diabetes, type two diabetes, type one diabetes, whatever the case is in which we're confident that there are markedly increased risk that can be modified with treatment. And then this hazy gray area in between called pre-diabetes, which has been kind of a controversial uh, diagnostic label over the years. Of course, some people just, you know, view it from a conspiracy perspective and say, oh, they just want to, you know, diagnose more people and, and push more meds and things like that. And others are like, well, we want to diagnose all, or, you know, catch all these people who are likely to progress and develop complications. The same conversation happened around the diagnosis of high blood pressure or hypertension and then pre-hypertension. People are like, well, we're just pathologizing all this stuff and, and, and making people patients and making people sicker. It's like, well, it is unequivocal that diabetes significantly increases a variety of health risks. We don't need to really spend a lot of time making that case today. Prediabetes is a bit more complex. It's been estimated that about a third of adults in the U.S. meet criteria for prediabetes, which is massive, <laughs> about 700 million people around the world. The question, though, is if somebody has prediabetes, what is the likelihood that they're going to progress to overt diabetes and be at risk of those complications? And it's estimated that about 10% of people per year will progress, which is pretty substantial fraction of a very large number, right? On the other hand, um, if you subsequently test people who initially were in this prediabetes range, about 15, maybe in some data sets, upwards of 20% can have blood sugar values that seem to spontaneously normalize on subsequent testing, meaning they either regress back towards normal um, for whatever reason, or it could be, you know, partially some confounding of, you know, that test-test variability. If on one test, they were in the low range of prediabetes, and then on the next test, they're more in the range of normal, how much overlap is there in terms of like the error bars? of your test? Or did they enter a phase of their life where they're a little more active or lost a little bit of weight for whatever reason and things normalized on their own? So about 10% a year can progress, about 15, maybe 20% will spontaneously normalize. The problem is we can't identify who is going to be who. <laughs> when, when we detect somebody who has quote unquote prediabetes, that alone does not really help us confidently say this person is likely to progress towards diabetes, this other person is likely to regress. And so that's kind of where there's a lot of conversation and, and, and discussion in the, the medical world about the nature of this kind of gray area in between. But I think, you know, it, practically speaking, what do I do when I detect, if I happen to detect somebody whose values are in that gray area, I kind of make some recommendations that are similar to the recommendations I'd make for somebody with diabetes. I'm just way less aggressive with the use of medications and things like that compared to diagnosing outright diabetes or diabetes with complications. I'm way more aggressive with prediabetes. It's kind of like this gray area in between phase where maybe I'm going to push a little bit more heavily on the uh, lifestyle interventions, particularly if I don't have any detected complications already and see if I can get them, you know, nudge them back towards normal into that regression kind of kind of category. But if they don't, then they continue to progress, then we can, you know, we have time to, to alter our trajectory there. So that's kind of like the overall goal. I care not so much about the specific blood sugar number outside of like real extremes that themselves are harmful. Um, and but rather, I care about what is the individual's uh, risk for downstream complications and death and things like that. And, and to what extent do I have the ability to modify it? So that's what I'm aiming to 
kind of glean from, from testing while interpreting these tests, including all the caveats that we have mentioned so far and that we will continue to mention the rest of this podcast. Yeah. So let's talk about some testing. We'll start out with the oral glucose tolerance test. Have you, have you ever done one of these yourself? No, not personally. My God. Gross. All right. So, so yeah. Oh, okay. So just for the listeners at home, you, you're drinking, uh, and within five minutes, you're supposed to drink this drink that has 75 grams of carbohydrates. And uh, let me tell you, this is not a pleasant tasting thing. It's gr- well, it's sickly sweet. And so I'm thinking about other drinks I know that have about the same amount of sugar in it. And I'm thinking like orange soda or like a, like a, like a full strength root beer or something. It, it is not like that. It's just imagine like Gatorade, but like the most sickly sweet version of said Gatorade. I think in the UK, they used like a carbonated version, which was probably more palatable. But now there's like just a standardized drink. Uh, in children, it's weight-based. and in, uh, individuals who are pregnant, it's a different dose. But in otherwise uh, healthy adults or adults that you're testing, this, it's 75 grams of carbohydrates. You're supposed to consume it in five minutes. And then um, after measuring, uh, before you drink it, they measure your blood sugar and then they measure your blood sugar again, two hours later. So it's a two hour, uh, oral glucose tolerance test after you slug down this 75 gram bolus of carbohydrates. And so there's the normal range. Uh, if after you drink this, uh, the level should be, you know, below, uh, 140, you know, milligrams per deciliter. Um, ideally somewhere in that 100 to 120 range, but less than 140 is considered normal. Uh, individuals who would meet criteria for prediabetes via this particular test would have values again, after two hours of 140 to 199, 199 milligrams per deciliter and individuals with, uh, uh diabetes per this particular test criteria would have, uh, values greater than 200. And again, I keep saying this two hour window because it's not at 60 minutes, 90 minutes, 30 minutes. It's two hours. And so that is important. And particularly when we talk about continuous glucose monitors, if somebody after a meal had a value of, you know, 150, 30 minutes after a meal, and they're like, well, what does this mean? And we're like, don't know. (laughs) We could really just end the podcast. Don't know. Because it's not only is it not above 200, which usually any blood sugar test greater than 200, we start getting uh, our spidey senses tingling for diabetes diagnosis. Uh, but it's also only 30 minutes. Um, so don't really know, um, what that means. Um, do you guys do that? Are you doing that a lot in the hospital? Like if you're just curious, I assume somebody comes in with like an elevated blood sugar and you're like, huh, I wonder, maybe we'll do an or- oral glucose tolerance test. Yeah, Never. probably not. Yeah. Cause they can't be <laughs> sick, right? They're supposed to be healthy in general. It's like outpatient testing, but yeah, I, I didn't know if you had somebody that you were just keeping on the ward for some particular reason. And you're like, Hey, while you're here, nah, that's uh, not yeah, the time for that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, but again, the timing is important. So this is all at the two hour mark where we're seeing these values. So normal, again, less than 140, uh, pre-diabetes would be 140 to 199. And then diabetes would be consistent, uh, with the value greater than 200, again, two hours after you slug down this. And I cannot emphasize this enough, very gross drink. <laughs> um, and there, you can also test people's blood sugar via a standard blood draw. So, um, there are what are called point of care tests. That's like a finger prick type uh, situation or just a standard blood test. You're going to get a blood sugar. And so a normal, and this is your, these are fasting, uh, blood sugar tests, a normal fasting blood sugar, somewhere between 65 and 99. Again, pre-diabetes would be in that 100 to 125 range. And then diabetes would be greater than 126 on usually two separate readings or a single value of greater than 200. And again, the benefits here over oral glucose tolerance test, well, one, 
you don't have to make them sit in the you know clinic for the the two hours they in general as long as they're fasting um you can obtain a pretty uh accurate test and uh yeah this is probably uh, the most common way that people like kind of get flagged as like oh maybe they have impaired glucose metabolism um just on like a standard blood draw there is some analytic variation uh, in this test so about 1.4 cent percent of uh the values varies just due to the testing methods and equipment so you could test somebody like you know three seconds after they got the first test and there'd be some variation and so they're like well in this one test i was 100 but this other test i was 98 where i was 102 and it's like that's a shoulder shrug we don't really know what to make of that um and so that's one type of variation there's also biological variation and so broadly speaking Biological variation falls into one of two uh, kind of buckets. The first bucket is like this daily, monthly, uh, circadian, or even seasonal variation in tests. The, there are some things like that, like testosterone, for example, tends to peak in the morning. That's why we do AM testosterone tests. If I wanted to like make sure or at least stack the deck against somebody so they would have low <laughs> testosterone values, I would make them come in in the afternoon or early evening. I would make sure that they did like a bender the night before and like had a bunch of sex or something. And then their testosterone levels would likely be much lower than uh, they would be in the morning. But also I still don't know what to do with that value just because of the known variation. So that's one type of biological variation. Not all blood tests have that type of variation, but some do. Uh, For blood sugar, the more common um, biological variation has to do uh, with effectively the swings that just happen minute to minute, uh, hour to hour. Um, and so for blood sugar testing, it's about 4.8%, nearly 5%. Um, and that's just, again, not only the nature of the test, which is like an analytic variation, but just, yeah, minute to minute, hour to hour, um, day to day, there's just changes here. And so that should not be overlooked because again, if someone's like, well, a month ago, my blood sugar was 95, fasting blood sugar was 95. And now it's 98. What does that mean? And we're like, don't know. I view it as the same. Yeah. At approximately the same. Yeah. yeah. And and so the same thing with like tests like TSH for testing for thyroid, some cholesterol, there's biological variation and analytical variation in cholesterol tests. Effectively, every test that we perform has some variation. Now, whether or not that's been well characterized is a whole nother uh, situation because if it's a new test or proprietary test or a test with very limited use, it might be less well characterized. But yeah. For but this stuff is not this this is yeah as you said it's common it's universal to effectively all medical testing and it's part of why it's super frustrating when like a lot of these direct to consumer lab testing companies um i won't name any names even though i'm tempted to will just you know s- send people their results and they have like a, a stoplight system of like a red a red light green light kind of thing with a very rigid range with no like you know caveats or nuance around the interpretation of these numbers to account for, you know, what is the context that this lab was measured in? Um, Are there signs or symptoms that would alter the way I would interpret it? What is the analytic variation? What is the biological variation? Or is it difference from one test to another? You know, is it outside the realm of possibility that it is within this range of error, meaning are we super confident that these are truly different, um, whether it's an improvement or a worsening, or could they be within the same error bars, in which case it's a shrug. And none of that stuff is really conveyed. And so, you know, it's it's particularly frustrating because a lot of what ends up happening is uh, folks will get these lab tests and they'll have something that's like in a red zone, and then they'll come and want to do a consult with us or something like that over this test that probably should have never been done in the first place. Yeah. It's an incidentaloma. Incidentally yeah. found this thing that has a variation that eh, otherwise that may be uninterpretable. Yeah. Correct. Anyway. Yeah. 
So the oral glu- glucose tolerance test and a blood test of blood sugar, those measure blood sugar levels at a particular and the response to a challenge in the case of the oral glucose tolerance test, those measure blood sugar at a particular time point. Whereas this next test, which is called hemoglobin A1C, kind of gives us a picture of the overall management um, of blood sugar for a longer period of time, two to three months on average. And so this is a common screening test and sometimes diagnostic tool for type 2 diabetes, for example, or in individuals who already have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, how well their diabetes has been managed. Um, These were not previously used to diagnose diabetes because there's a variation in the actual test that was being used. But um, in as recent as what, 10 or 15 years ago, they've effectively standardized the assays now. So we kind of have a, again, a particular cut point that we know and trust and is ultimately pretty reliable. So as far as what values here, um, that are consistent with like a normal blood sugar sort of uh, management over time. Uh, again, four to five point six percent. That's the range for normal, um, and also is the kind of goal A one C for most individuals with diabetes. Although that's different for older individuals um, and 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 some, certain populations. And when I say percent, people are like, well, percent of what? And effectively, what they're measuring is how much sugar is stuck to the red blood cell. And so somewhere in that four to 5.6% of the red blood cells should have sugar stuck to it. If it's higher than that, so for example, uh, 5.7 to 6.4%, that would be indicative of maybe an individual who has prediabetes, for example. And if it's above 6.5%, that is consistent with the diagnosis of diabetes. And so at any point above 5.6%, you start thinking like, now this person likely has some impairment in glucose metabolism. And just like blood sugar, there is some analytic variation. So in individual diabetes, the analytic variation, meaning the test itself, uh, can be off by as much as 2%. And that's not two percentage points, meaning like it could be (laughs) four and a half one day and six and a half the other day, but 2% of the total value. So some, you know, a point, a decimal point. Um, And the variation is even higher in healthy individuals, two and a half percent. And there's also biological variation, again, just day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute. That's about 4.3% in individuals with diabetes and 1.6% in healthy individuals. And I actually see the the biological variation play out uh, quite frequently in individuals with diabetes. They're like, oh, my previous A1C was 6.7 and now it's 6.5. That's good, right? And you want to encourage people, you want to say, yeah, you're doing the right things, particularly if they are engaging in the right, you know, lifestyle changes. But ultimately, I don't know what to make of that change because it's too small for me to really be confident. Like, yep, this is definitely lower than it was before. Yeah, I certainly prefer it to go in that direction rather than from 6.7 to 6.9. So I'll take what I can get. But my level of confidence that this represents like significant improvement in control is is not not super, super high in these situations. And the other interesting caveat with these tests is that they don't always uh, in fact, they frequently do not all agree with one another. In other words, sometimes I've had patients who've met diagnostic criteria for diabetes based on a fasting blood sugar of greater than 126, say on two occasions, but their hemoglobin A1C was not over the 6.5 kind of cutoff um, or vice versa. They could have had the 6.5 plus and their fastings weren't, weren't so bad and, and kind of every other permutation among all these different tests. So it can be tricky um, and, and it can be frustrating for, for, for patients who might be getting conflicting messages. Sometimes as a clinician, I actually take advantage of this a little bit when I'm trying to get insurance coverage for certain, <laughs> certain medications. And I'm like, I'll take whatever criterion they meet to get coverage for this, uh, particularly in the era of like GLP-1 therapy and things like that. Um, 
where I'll latch onto the one that was uh, positive that they met criteria for, even if they didn't on another one and see if I can use that to, to, to go battle the, the insurance company with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the benefits of this particular test is that no specific prep or fasting is needed. So effectively, if somebody could have uh, you know, consumed a meal just before they came into the clinic and you can get this blood draw and you feel confident about its findings again with the known analytic and biological variation. They still don't need to like be fasting or any specific prep. They don't need to sit in the office for two hours, you know, while after drinking that again, very gross drink. <laughs> um, so that's one of the benefits. But some of the problems is that it only provides this single point average of glucose levels over the last two to three months. And so it doesn't really detect these day to day swings of low or high blood sugars is all gets averaged out. And in some conditions, particularly like an individual who has a new diagnosis of diabetes, you would kind of want to have a uh, more granular look at like, hey, are you having a bunch of hypoglycemic, so low blood sugar or hyperglycemic events? Um, you could see how those might cancel each other out and give you the, you know, uh, perspective. that might look okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it looks good. And they're like, yeah, but I don't feel so great. Yeah. Um, so you're missing that. And also assumes a normal hemoglobin and red blood cell lifespan. So for example, if somebody has a shortened red blood cell lifespan, uh, that happens in pregnancy or different uh, disease processes that actually like eat the red blood cells or they have anemia or if the red blood cell life cycle is longer. So if they have iron deficiency anemia, like a more common form of anemia, or if they even have abnormal types of hemoglobin. So a sickle cell disease, for example, all of those effectively make this test much less reliable. And so uh, I actually remember a patient I saw uh, during an intern year in the clinic and they were previously undiagnosed with a, uh, a thalassemia. And, uh, and I was like, this A1C looks funky. And so, yeah, it turns out you just really can't use that in this particular case unless the condition's well-managed and, and then you have a normal red blood cell life cycle. Yeah, there are just other tests that we'll sometimes go to in those situations. Yep. yep, and you can estimate an A1C based off of this continuous blood glucose monitoring data. So if you have a two-week period that has greater than 70% of available data present, you can use that to effectively come up with an average blood sugar, and that correlates well with A1C. So uh, those individuals are unlikely to just be reliant on the continuous glucose monitoring data, but it does seem to stack up pretty well. Uh, okay. So we've talked about like what blood sugar is, how to test for it. Now we're going to talk about how this changes with the meal. And we get so many questions on this, just like blood sugar spikes and like what that means. So this will be useful, even if you're not interested at all in blood glucose monitoring or anything like that. So in healthy individuals, as defined by a normal A1C and these particular individuals, with, this was studied and had normal BMIs as well, blood sugar after meals typically run in the 100 to 140 milligrams per deciliter range. So in one study where these healthy individuals wore a continuous blood glucose monitor, remember that's an electronic device that basically measures real-time changes in blood sugar, they wore it for two consecutive days and at each meal they had 50 grams of carbohydrates of various types. So not only like whole grain or complex carbohydrates, carbohydrates, um, but also like very simple, you know, sugar-based uh, carbohydrate sources along with variable protein and fat content. So the meals were mixed, right? It wasn't just one type of meal. The peak blood sugar was below 140 milligrams per deciliter in 99.2% uh, of these individuals uh, when they were tested. And again, they wore these for two days. So only 0.8% of the time were they above 140. And the time to peak this peak blood sugar level was about 40 to 50 minutes after they ate. Um, the highest blood sugar reading uh, while they were wearing the continuous monitor was 171 milligrams per deciliter. 
Uh, and this was in response to a high glycemic load meal, which effectively means it had lower amounts of dietary fiber, lower amounts of fat and lower, uh, content, uh, lower protein content, all of those things. So higher protein, higher fat, higher dietary fiber tend to slow the release of the stomach contents into the small intestine. And therefore it's like a, a slower drip of blood of sugar into the blood. And so, um, yeah. In healthy individuals, again, the normal range is somewhere between 100 to 140 after a meal. Um, and then again, I cannot stress this enough. Oral glucose tolerance test is about two hours is two hours exactly in length. So we this is not an oral glucose tolerance test. Um, this is basically just saying like what happens to a standard meal in individuals who are otherwise healthy. Uh, another study, similarly in healthy people, but larger, so a larger sample size and more diverse sample size. So they had children aged six all the way to um, older adults aged 65. They wore a continuous glucose monitor for three to seven days and they were blinded to the results. So they couldn't see like, oh, what's my blood sugar after this? And presumably that might've affected what they would eat if they saw like a high value. Usually these the readouts, the digital readouts will have like an arrow pointing the blood sugar like up, or even diagonally, like, oh, it's trending up or whatever. Uh, yeah, the uh, the amount of time they spent at blood sugar levels higher than 140 was only 0.4% of the time. And so again, the take home, like what is a normal blood sugar response to a meal in a otherwise healthy individual is again, somewhere in this 100 to 140 milligrams per deciliter range takes about 40 to 50 minutes, sometimes up to an hour for you to get there. Um, and so I would not consider any of those values, quote unquote, a blood sugar spike. That just seems to be the normal response to a meal and the meal components are going to have not only the amount, but also like what it's made of is going to determine how high and how quickly you get there. It would be all, great if we could just get rid of the term spike, if people just stopped using it because it just makes it unnecessarily scary. We, you know, the medical side, we're talking about, you know, gl blood glucose excursion, like it is out on a trip going a little up and then coming back down. And that can be, you know, a normal type of excursion, uh, but it can be, you know, excessively high. Um, and so that's kind of what we're discussing here. But the term spike, I think, uh, is, again, a bit of a loaded term. And then people tend to apply it incorrectly to like any increase after a meal. Uh, so would not just use that terminology. I don't use it at all with patients. Yeah. Oh, your blood sugar spike. They're like, wait, what? Spike seems yeah. bad. You get yeah. blood sugar plateau, blood sugar. Butte. Could, it, could it also spike like in the, in a volleyball sense and like spike down really quickly? I don't know. But yeah, yeah right. It's like the learning curve thing. We'll have to ask yeah, the there audience. You go. There you go. <laughs> so all of this is to say that glucose levels greater than 140 are relatively uncommon in healthy individuals without diabetes. And this uh, is corroborated by the kind of recommendation from the American Diabetes Association, the ADA. They have a term that's called time in range. It's kind of like a goal of blood sugar values for individuals with diabetes. And so effectively their goal is for 70% of the time, blood, uh, blood sugar value should be somewhere between 70 and 180 uh, for most individuals. And so uh, the time in range should be at least 70% and the range is 70 to 180. Um, but, you know, in healthy individuals are effectively spending a hundred percent of their time within this range. Um, and yeah, when that's actually been tested in individual healthy individuals wearing a continuous blood glucose monitor, again, that electronic device that just senses real time data on blood sugar. Uh, yeah, 99% uh, of the time people are effectively in that range. Uh, and the average gl blood glucose value is just around a hundred. So that that's typically what we see. And so again, that's like these, this normal 
uh, response to a meal with blood sugar. So the blood sugar excursion isn't really too great. Um, so if most healthy individuals do not go over 140 milligrams per deciliter after a meal and do not have values consistent with impaired fasting glucose uh, levels, what level is actually too high? What would, you know, quote unquote, qualify as a spike, even if we don't love that term? Remember, we have standardized cutoffs for an oral glucose tolerance test that have, you know, they get 75 grams of carbohydrates and you measure it at two hours. Um, what's less clear, again, is what would be abnormal in a mixed meal. So what most people would normally eat, because most people aren't slugging down, you know, a sun-kissed with 70 plus grams of sugar uh, without any other food uh, and at different time intervals, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes after this meal. So that value appears to be right around 180 milligrams per deciliter. Um, and this probably represents a blood glucose level that's consistent with unwanted outcomes, whether it's trending towards prediabetes, diabetes, or subsequent like complications of those disease processes. Uh, this is also associated with a it's called a renal threshold or renal splay that also happens at 180 milligrams per deciliter. And I know, I know we talked about this off air before Austin, but how would you define renal splay? Even though you don't like talk about this regularly, uh, it's like more like a med med student kind of learning point. What, how do you define this thing? Yeah, it's more of a basic physiology point. Um, but the idea is that, you know, our kidneys do all sorts of super important things for us and reclaim uh, important substances. So they do not freely, you know, we, we filter our blood in the kidneys and then the kidneys reclaim um, things that are important. So for example, like sodium, the kidneys tend to try to retain a lot of the time um, or, you know, amino acids if they end up in there or various other kind of substances that the kidneys will say, oh, I don't want that to, you know, get lost into the urine. So I'll reclaim it. Blood sugar similarly gets reclaimed, gets reabsorbed because we do not want to routinely you know, pee out and lose blood sugar that could be a valuable source of energy from, you know, probably an evolutionary standpoint. So we want to reclaim that, reabsorb it so that we can keep it for use and not, uh, you know, accidentally pee it out. But there is kind of an upper limit um, that is different for each of these substances of how much we can reclaim before, you know, our ability to keep reabsorbing it is maximized. And then it kind of spills over and ends up in the urine anyway. And so somewhere in this range of a 180, 200 kind of blood sugar range is where most people, if their blood sugar gets up to that level, and particularly if it stays at that level, then we'll start to see, you know, the kidney kind of maxing out its ability to reabsorb blood sugar, and we'll start to detect uh, glucose in the urine. So, so this is actually, you know, throwback medical history, how they used to diagnose diabetes was literally tasting patients urine. And by the time it tasted sweet, um, then, you know, that's, that's evidence that is, uh, it is inappropriately spilling into the urine. And before that, you're presumably below that kind of threshold where the kidney is able to keep up and reabsorb this stuff. Um, there are some, you know, a ton of caveats to interpretation of this stuff, especially these days with certain medications that can, that can impact that. But that's kind of the, the basic idea is that, you know, once it gets too high and particularly if it stays too too high, it starts to spill out in the urine inappropriately. And that is abnormal. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good summary. And so like what evidence do we actually have that blood sugar values greater than 180, where this sort of renal splay occurs? What evidence do we have that this is actually quote unquote bad or like is tr the people are trending towards unwanted outcomes? So there's actually a test. Um, it's a metabolite. It's called 1,5-anhydroglucatol, which is branded as glycomark. I have no conflicts of interest with glycomark. But hey, if you want to send me a paycheck, I'll consider I'll consider having a conflict of interest. <laughs> so whenever blood glucose exceeds greater than 180, the kidneys cannot keep all the glucose in the blood. Some of it ends up in the urine, like Austin said. And so what happens here is that this 1,5-AG, um, this glycomark test, uh, is excreted in the urine along with glucose 
with along with sugar and subsequently blood 1,5 AG levels drop. So low 1,5 AG in the blood is consistent with frequent spikes of blood sugar to greater than 180, whereas higher or normal levels of 1,5 AG suggest better glucose control and relatively infrequent quote unquote spikes. So we have data that people with low 1,5 AG, which would again be consistent with multiple uh, frequent excursions to blood sugar levels greater than 180 is uh, correlates with bad stuff. So cancer mortality, for example, we have data on that. We have data on diabetes complications such as peripheral neuropathy and kidney disease uh, and a bunch of different uh, adjusted analyses. Um, similarly, low 1,5 AG levels, which again is consistent with these relatively frequent spikes to greater than 180, is consistent with cardiovascular events, so heart attack, stroke, things of that nature. Uh, and this is in people both with diagnosed diabetes and also in individuals who had not been diagnosed with diabetes. So it seems like having regular excursions to 180 or higher uh, is unwanted or are unwanted. And that makes sense though, because again, if the normal sort of blood sugar excursion after a typical meal, either in a controlled testing environment or also in free living individuals who are otherwise healthy is between 100 and 140, yeah, 180 is significantly higher than that. That no amount of biological or analytical variation kind of makes up for that. Uh, and again, if it's ended up in the urine and subsequently we can test using this 1,5-AG test to kind of see how often that's happening, um, yeah, it correlates to these, to these outcomes. Now, it should be clear, I'm not recommending people go out and get this test. Like you don't need to know that. But if we were trying to come up with a blood sugar value that is like, eh, that's probably too high, 180 kind of seems like a good benchmark to me. Um, and again, that's significantly higher than the normal excursion we'd see in response to a meal. And that's typically the level of control that we aim for, even in the hospitalized setting with sick patients uh, to try to keep them below 180, more or less. Um, and this uh, glycomark test, again, not super commonly used. I've seen it used occasionally by some endocrinologists. I've not ordered it myself. Um, I don't know, you know, great evidence as far as how much it can impact, you know, management decisions and things like that with diabetes. So I don't routinely use it myself, but it's just some interesting kind of physiology that goes along and supports the, the overall point that we're making here. Yeah. And since we've been talking about high blood sugar a lot, so hyperglycemia, too much sugar in the blood, it for completeness sake, we should probably talk about low blood sugar briefly. So that's hypoglycemia. This is, I, uh, I think it's best viewed as like a continuum based on glucose, blood glucose values and also symptoms. And so, uh, and this is based on data, uh, for individuals with diabetes, uh, who are wearing these continuous glucose monitors. Um, typically there's an alert set at about 70 milligrams per deciliter. Um, and that kind of represents level one or like mild hypoglycemia. So somewhere between 54 to 70 milligrams per deciliter. And if you recall, normal blood sugar is somewhere between 65 and 99. So there is a little bit of overlap there. And if you think about why they would kind of have that buffer of five milligrams per deciliter, one, there's that biological variation. And then two, if you're an individual with diabetes and you're, you're really trying to avoid these hypoglycemic events. And so you'd want like an early alert rather than like, Oh shit, sound the alarm. We got to do something uh, yeah. now. This is an important point is that low blood sugar can be more dangerous in the short term, whereas high blood sugar is more dangerous in the long term. Long term. Yeah. You don't have yeah. a long term of low blood sugar. Correct. You start <laughs> having seizures and you <laughs> die. <laughs> and you die. Incompatible with life. Yes. So that's like mild set that 54 to 70 range. And that can be with or without symptoms. Level two, which would be more moderate in severity is a blood glucose level than 50 is lower than 54. Again, with or without symptoms. This again should be considered significant hypoglycemia requiring 
immediate attention. And then level three is severe hypoglycemia. This is also below 54 milligrams per deciliter, uh, usually with some sort of cognitive impairment requiring external assistance for recovery. So these people typically either go to the hospital or otherwise require like emergent care uh, just because again, having very low blood sugar for a prolonged amount of time is incompatible with life. And uh, it's not one of those things you're like, ah, I'll get to it here in a little bit after I finish this paragraph. <laughs> it's like, no, do something now. Um, and so individuals wearing these continuous glucose monitors will have multiple alerts set that'll like, I imagine it's like a, like your phone, like somebody's hammer texting you like emergency, emergency. Um, okay. So now that we've laid the groundwork for the background physiology concerning blood sugar, let's talk about these continuous glucose monitors. So first off, like what are they? And again, I've been saying these, uh, these are these electronic devices that measure blood sugar on a real-time basis. And so how do they do that? So over the past 20 years, uh, effectively a, a number of disadvantages to self-monitored blood glucose by like finger prick uh, led to the development of these continuous glucose monitoring systems. Uh, these are typically worn on the body uh, and they automatically and constantly measure uh, the glucose concentration in the interstitial fluid of the subcutaneous tissue. Now those are both multi-syllable words that people are like, what is that? So Austin, how would you explain that to a patient if you had to? Yeah. So whereas we normally can draw blood or do a finger prick and, and that blood that leaks out is coming from, you know, capillaries and we can, we can check uh, the blood sugar or estimate the blood sugar concentration within the bloodstream. Um, there is kind of some, you know, equilibrium across all the body's different compartments. And so the tissues around the blood vessels themselves have fluid in them. And that fluid also has concentrations of all the same kinds of things, has concentrations of sodium and protein and glucose and things like that. So it's basically the tissues that are, you know, around our blood vessels or that our blood vessels are traveling through. Um, and so we're just measuring the glucose in that compartment rather than out of the bloodstream itself. Yeah. And so there's assumed to be this like high degree of accuracy between this additional compartment in the interstitial fluid and the bloodstream. So that's effectively, we're using it as a proxy for blood sugar. Um, and so the glucose concentration in the interstitial fluid of the subcutaneous tissue closely correlates with glucose concentration in the blood. It's pH stable and really not susceptible to contamination. So you can say if you were doing like a finger prick test or whatever, and the blood happened to be contaminated with sweat or your fingers were dirty or, you know, otherwise uh, something you maybe didn't take into consideration, you might get an aberrant result. But this is typically free from those sort of disadvantages, which in addition to like actual pain from like repeated finger prick mm -hmm. <laughs> and then yeah. people just being like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. yeah. These continuous blood glucose monitoring systems uh, have been useful at like getting a reliable, consistent sort of measurement of blood sugar. Um, they're typically attached to the upper arm or abdomen and can be worn for up to two weeks, depending on the type of system. There are new models that can be there for like half a year, 180 days. Um, and the measured glucose value is typically sent to an current times a smartphone, um, but otherwise could be sent to some sort of display device that's either worn, you know, they wear it like a pager or whatever. Mm -hmm. I just imagine some dad somewhere, he's got like his cell phone on a holster. He's got the <laughs> continuous glucose monitor display, a beeper on the other side. He's loaded. Rand, <laughs> Rand yeah. is, is loaded. He's ready to go. Uh, and yeah, so some devices automatically will alert the user in case of like a clinically critical value. So either like really high blood sugar or like we said earlier, really low would be even more important. Uh, and then you can kind of upload or, or evaluate this data um, using your computer. 
novel devices that are currently under development, they analyze uh, sugar in the this interstitial fluid using this minimally invasive micro needle based approach. So it's you know not painful, uh, and the penetration depth is is really really low. So some of them look like stickers. You just like place them on and they're like, Oh, I can do that. Whereas previous ones were less comfortable. I suppose I never have actually worn one. Um, cause I don't have impaired glucose metabolism and no, but like when I was on an endocrinology sort of rotation, they weren't like, Hey dude, you want to wear this thing? Uh, yeah, that I know was, Nadolskis I mean, have back, back then that was, you know, they were even harder to come by. Um, they're relatively more prevalent now too, but yeah, yeah. I think Spencer's tried one. Yeah. Uh, so a couple downsides here just right off the bat. So one, uh, obviously, is cost, uh, particularly if you don't have diabetes, they, they cost something. Um, they're becoming more and more, I guess, available uh, to consumers. Um, but that being said, they still cost, you know, hundreds and, and more of dollars. And then uh, additionally, like interpreting what these values are, we're going to get in the nitty gritty of that here shortly. Uh, but also there's a delay. Um, and it depends on what you're doing as to how much this delay is and to like the significance thereof. So in general, most have like a five to 10 minute delay between like what your blood sugar is and then what, as it takes time for it to equip, uh, equilibrate in your interstitial fluid space. Um, so five to 10 minutes and that's under resting conditions, but under exercise conditions, um, it's even longer than that. And the magnitude is much, much higher. So if you're using this to monitor blood sugar during exercise, like <laughs> we do not have standardized data on that. And we'll talk about that more shortly, but overall, what you need to know about continuous glucose monitor, as far as what they are, and what they do, they measure glucose in the interstitial fluid, uh, within the subcutaneous tissue, which is assumed to be very close to the sugar concentration in the blood under steady state conditions. One immediate question then that comes to mind is how accurate are these things? So the way that this, these are kind of compared and to evaluate the accuracy and subsequent precision of these devices is to compare them to actual blood glucose tests. So either from a blood test where they do a whole blood draw, you know, the vial of blood comes out, send it off to the lab or a finger prick test. And the generally acceptable difference is about 10% plus or minus. This is also referred to as the mean absolute relative difference or MARD, but this isn't uh, like the 10% cut point isn't universally applicable. And in fact, like there's no regulatory body that's like, it has to be within these stated parameters. There are ISO, so international standard, uh, I forget what the O stands for, like recommendations for numerical accuracy that it has to be within 15%. But this hasn't been adopted by like the American Diabetes Association or other like, uh, you know, work groups that kind of comment on this sort of stuff. And it's also important to note that this like relative difference is a measurement of the performance of the entire system. So not only the sensor within the continuous glucose monitor device, but also the proprietary algorithm that each device uses. Um, so, you know, each different manufacturer has a slightly different algorithm that sort of correlates like, oh, this is your interstitial fluid glucose level. Uh, this is probably your blood glucose level. So you're really evaluating the differences in this whole system rather than just the sensor itself. While there has been a steady improvement in the accuracy of both glucose sensors and algorithms as more and more data have emerged over the past few decades, different devices provide different values and have different length of time delays and different levels of precision, especially uh, in hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic 
states. So for example, a study collected paired uh, CGM, so continuous glucose monitor and capillary glucose values. There were over 10,000 pairs. They basically looked like, what's the average difference? Um, these were in individuals with type one diabetes. The average difference was 13%, um, but it was more accurate in the hyperglycemic range. The difference got down to uh, just under 10%, but in hypoglycemic ranges, it was far, far worse, closer to 20%. Um, and even further, we'd want to know like how accurate are these devices in delineating small changes in individuals who don't have diabetes? Um, cause you would assume that there's less excursion of blood glucose one way or the other, uh, particularly during resting periods. And so if there's this sort of built in error, so to speak, um, and people have relatively small change, healthy individuals have relatively small changes, like how accurate are these things? And further, what about during dynamic, uh, events where blood glucose is changing relatively rapidly in some cases like exercise, for example, uh, <laughs> there's no data right now that's comparing continuous glucose monitoring values to, um, blood tests in healthy individuals. So this is more like speculation than anything else, but I would assume that the average difference is actually about the same only because the values aren't changing that much. That said, the difference still makes those values even almost less useful because it's like, what, what do you do with the blood glucose change of five? Like, I, I don't know. Biohackers are all about different, you know, changes in that, <laughs> in that range. They, they imbue those sorts of differences with, uh, more meaning than they are, uh, they are due, I think from a yeah. clinical standpoint. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and then, you know, particularly to this podcast and its topic, you know, the use of continuous glucose monitors outside of individuals, diabetes, uh, and particularly during exercise. Yeah. This varies significantly with activity. There's good data on how individuals with type one diabetes who are wearing continuous glucose monitors, how their blood sugar sort of changes, and then how that compares to sort of, uh, more, we would call it more reliable or more direct measurements of blood sugar. Um, so yeah, the lag time between different devices is, all over the place, anywhere between five to 20 minutes. Um, also in some of these uh, studies, they're actually giving people carbohydrates while they're exercising and then trying to see like, when does this show up? And not only is there a difference in how quickly it shows up um, in the testing, but also the inter-individual response to carbohydrate intake in general. Um, so yeah, a number of studies on different devices used in individuals with type one diabetes show an average mean uh, uh, absolute relative difference uh, as high as 22% during exercise. And so you're like, what do I do with these values? And yeah, that's exactly where we're at. We're in the same, we're in the same boat. Uh, on top of this, it's important to consider whether or not continuous glucose monitors are sufficiently sensitive to reflect subtle changes in fueling status and exercise that have meaningful implications on athlete health and performance. And so all of that is to say, like, if you're using this during exercise, and we're going to talk about this in more uh, depth, like do small changes while you're exercising actually change something that you should be doing like and to what end like so, the amount of like atp that you have or something like if you had a continuous atp monitor <laughs> would it reflect that which god i hope we never get to that point. yeah yeah you're like oh dude your cellular energy levels are <laughs> yeah, low yeah, yeah. Uh, the patient's dead duh. that's like yeah <laughs> okay so so let's get into this let's talk about outcomes let's talk about if whether or not continuous glucose monitors are important or useful at affecting outcomes we care about. So either it's preventing disease, managing disease, uh, improving health, uh, performance, things of that nature. So one claim, uh, particularly with manufacturers of these devices is that you can use them 
in healthy populations for early detection of diabetes. So, for example, in a study on uh, adolescents with overweight, um, those with prediabetes had significantly higher mean blood sugar values uh, than those who did not. They were consistently at ranges higher than 140 um, than, individ- than adolescents uh, who had a normal A1C, despite both of them uh, being uh, with overweight, so carrying too much um, body fat. And it's like, yeah, okay, like, of, of course. Um, the point would be, wouldn't be that like, hey, this data uh, doesn't correlate. The, the point would be like, does this additional data do better than current tests that we have available to either diagnose or otherwise screen for individuals who are at risk of developing diabetes? And I'm like, I would be able to tell this with an A1C. Yeah, it's already recommended for particularly with, you know, with overweight or, or obesity to screen those individuals with whichever of those tests that we've talked about before, be it glucose testing, A1C, oral glucose tolerance tests or combination, depending on your level of suspicion. Um, and so those would be less expensive, less um, kind of onerous. You don't have to have something on you at all times or in you at all times that is being monitored and tracked and things like that. And it is simpler. So you'd want to, you know, if, if, if you were the company here and you were trying to sell more of these devices, the idea of earlier detection would A, would have to be proven, but more importantly, you would have to demonstrate or, you know, to, to satisfy me as far as like a recommendation I might make for a patient to actually use one of these things is that we can detect it so much more, so much earlier that, and that earlier detection and intervention leads to better outcomes compared with routine detection um, uh, based on standard screening measures in people with overweight or obesity that I already suspect might have it. In other words, like a real big picture outcome has to be better with these things, which um, I'm not aware uh, that evidence exists. Yeah. And in fact, like this current, the largest analysis we've done on this, and I say we, I mean the the royal we, so researchers, it's, uh, it's individual patient data from 73 prospective studies, almost 300,000 subjects show that the addition of A1C, okay, so these are people who added an, a legit A1C test to the current uh, cardiovascular risk factors that are routinely screened for, screened for, so age, sex, blood pressure, uh, total and high density lipoprotein cholesterol, smoking status, et cetera, did improve prediction for the development of cardiovascular disease. So like adding an A1C was helpful, but it was only marginally better and of very little clinical significance. So that right there, that study, that data set suggests to me that knowing somebody's like average blood glucose value over time did not really help in identifying cardiovascular disease risk to a significant degree. And so then if we back up further, like knowing beyond beyond those other risk factors, just to, just to clarify, right? Yeah. Beyond those other risk factors. But, and then, so then going one step further backwards, knowing like, what is your blood sugar on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. Yeah. From a continuous glucose monitoring system is unlikely to add any additional benefit. And so at this point, if someone's like, Hey, is this good for early detection of either risk of diabetes? I'd probably say mm, almost confidently, no, uh, compared to existing screening methods until that data set uh, comes out. And then when they say, what about other disease processes like cardiovascular disease? I'd be even more confident saying probably not. And again, if new data emerges that like moves the needle showing that not only does this earlier detection like occur, but also leads to better outcomes. So longer lifespan, longer health span, we'll do an update podcast, but that, that data does not currently exist. And the existing data does not look particularly promising. Um, 
Another sort of uh, advertised benefit of using a continuous glucose monitor is in the management of obesity. Uh, so for example, if you give people a continuous glucose monitor, this has been shown in individual, individuals with type 1 and type 2 diabetes and also individuals without diabetes or impaired glucose uh, metabolism uh, that they'll make different food choices. So effectively, they see a value that goes that's higher with a particular meal and then they'll see a value that's lower with a particular meal and the the lower value that meal will typically contain more fiber more protein less uh simple carbohydrates and so that those would all be indicative of a quote-unquote health promoting dietary pattern and yep those changes do seem to happen and so you could make an argument that using a continuous glucose monitor in an individual with or without diabetes might lead to better food choices. That is an argument, but as far as whether that leads to more or less weight loss, more or less other like outcomes, that remains yet to be determined. They've compared use of continuous glucose monitoring to like a finger prick test. And so you would say on weight loss. And so you would think like your hypothesis might be, well, because finger prick tests are so cumbersome and subsequent, you know, uh, subject to error and like people won't do them that maybe a continuous glucose monitoring system would be beneficial. They'd lose more weight. For example, uh, when this was tested, they both lost about four kilograms in six months. There was no difference between the finger prick and continuous glucose monitoring users. Uh, but there was no control in that study, which you would have liked to see just to know like, Hey, is actually checking blood sugar on a regular basis useful? <laughs> like they didn't do it. And you're like, guys, missed opportunity. Yeah. Uh, even though this doesn't exist, some, you know, this hypothetical study that I, that I'm thinking of could be interesting if we had such a thing as like a continuous triglyceride monitor, mm, something yeah, that like monitor fat that in the blood. Yeah. Um, I bet my, my, my bet would be if you did like a weight loss trial, for example, um, given what we've seen in generalized, like lower carb versus lower fat trials that generally it's like, you know, adherence and the, and the calorie energy balance seem, they seem to be the determinant. If you had CGM versus CTM of triglyceride <laughs> monitor compared, compared the two and saw how it impacted people's dietary choices, I bet you'd probably end up seeing relatively similar, you know, changes in, in weight and things like that. I think this is to some extent, one of these issues of like, you know, once you measure something, you start doing things that impact the measure and it may not be the thing that is, you know, uh, most important in the bigger picture. And, and what I'm getting at there is that even in people who have diabetes, a common misconception is that because diabetes is characterized by high blood sugar, then if I do not consume sugar and do not let my blood sugar go up, then I have effectively treated my diabetes. And that is not accurate. The elevation in blood sugar that is seen in diabetes is due to underlying insulin resistance, which is itself due to, you know, generalized cellular energy overload, which can come from any, um, you know, uh, uh, macronutrient basically, Carbs, as fat, well as yeah. other complicating variables, be it certain medications that can exacerbate it, certain inflammatory conditions, infections, whatever other kind of medical issues are, are ongoing. But for people without those medical issues, it's just cellular energy overload. And then, you know, body fat spills over into places that you don't want it to spill over into, be it your pancreas, your liver, abdominal body fat, things like that, that we've talked about plenty before. And so, I can make your blood sugar whatever I want it to be through these dietary patterns or through medications, but I may not actually be effectively treating the diabetes um, such that if you were to consume a carb, then you may still demonstrate the same, you know, glucose intolerance. You may still have really high blood sugars. Whereas if I actually address the underlying issue there, 
that underlying, you know, abdominal fat that has end up in the liver and the pancreas, the, the cellular energy overload and things like that, then in, you know, particularly if we do it early enough, then we can put diabetes into remission and restore normal, normal carbohydrate tolerance. And so the CGM, since it is measuring blood sugar and blood sugar is to some extent responsive to dietary sugar, I think people can get tricked into just, you know, eating less dietary carbohydrate, which is a strategy, but it's not necessarily superior to another strategy. And just because you're making your blood sugar look normal doesn't mean that you're effectively treating the underlying issue of diabetes. Yeah. Or treating it better anyway. Yeah. Better than alternative strategies. Exactly. Yeah. There's uh, also data here on continuous glucose monitors with respect to exercise adherence. And so you could say that promoting physical activity and more frequent exercise uh, participation would be an improvement for managing obesity or otherwise uh, improving someone's health trajectory. And so in individuals with type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes who are using a continuous glucose monitor compared to those who aren't, those folks do tend to have better exercise adherence. And so while that is promising for individuals perhaps without impaired glucose metabolism. So those without any form of diabetes, we don't know. There's no data on individuals without diabetes. There was one study on individuals with overweight and obesity, uh, but who did not have diabetes of any type, um, that they were basically gifted a Fitbit and a continuous glucose monitor, and then asked, what is, uh, what is the likelihood that you're going to change your exercise habits? And all of them reported that, uh, or the vast majority of them reported that they were more likely to engage in exercise, but they didn't actually measure <laughs> the change in exercise. And so you're like, well, this is promising, but yo, how about that follow-up though? <laughs> like, let's see if it actually did change. And, and again, I think a lot of this comes down to like, uh, the assumption that a lot of these behaviors are under like direct conscious control. You're like, well, if I have this data compared to having no data, I can control the outcome. And I think some of that may be true, particularly in the short term for behaviors, um, but like long term and then sub like long term behaviors and then subsequent long term outcomes, that's more of an unknown. And so you need to have the data there to really like feel confident about either recommending for or recommending against. And so my confidence level is very low. For, from like a health promotion strategy for individuals without diabetes. Yeah, I've certainly had some folks and some patients, and I know there are people out there who are probably a bit more responsive to these kind of, you know, data-based things, usually more of like the engineering type of <laughs> type of people and things like that. I have a, a few patients who are kind of in that, you know, in that realm, and they seem to respond more significantly, more robustly to these kind of things as far as it impacts their day-to-day -day decision making, even if the decisions that they're making are things that I would already be recommending to them, even if they didn't have the CGM, I might be recommending the same kind of diet uh, or the same kind of activity, but they, for whatever reason, because that's how their brain works, they see those numbers and they are, for whatever reason, more aggressive or more adherent, which is fine. But I think that, you know, that I can't generalize that and say, well, therefore the whole population should do this because the whole population, that is not the average person. And um, the average person does not care about this, generally has poor, you know, health literacy, numeracy in general, ability to interpret and act upon these things. And so I think broadly recommending these things is unlikely to happen. Whereas on an individual case by case basis, I'm willing to chat with people about it. And if they want to pay for it, if it's not, you know, a lot of times it ends up not being covered for them, then sure. And they can give it a trial and see, you know, how it impacts them. But I'm not going out of my way to recommend these to people, especially if it's not changing what I recommend they do anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And so overall, with respect to like promoting healthy behaviors, little data in healthy individuals, uh, I think the case is clear for health promotion in individuals with diabetes or otherwise impaired, you know, 
glucose metabolism, but for healthy individuals, I really can't confidently say one way or the other. Uh, and since this is the barbell medicine podcast, we're kind of exercise nerds here. Let's talk about athletic performance. Cause this is probably the thing that we get asked about, you know, with the second most frequency with respect to glucose monitoring first is going to be like weight loss, uh, for example. And the second is going to be, yeah, but what if I, you know, measured my glucose continuously while I was exercising and found these trends, what, what do like, or is this useful? Will I get the gains? <laughs> and so the assumption here is that blood glucose historically has been used as a proxy for carbohydrate availability, subsequent energy, energy availability and utilization in sport as a fuel for the contracting muscle tissue or as a precursor for muscle glycogen synthesis during recovery periods. Um, it's noted that circulating concentrations of blood sugar fail to illustrate the dynamic changes in rates of blood glucose appearance from the liver and the GI tract and subsequent uptake into tissue. So already right off the bat, we're like, well, I don't know if, you know, measuring blood glucose actually correlates to anything I, that I really care about. Um, nevertheless, it's been assumed that a higher or sustained blood glucose concentration during exercise uh, reflects the success of within session carbohydrate intake in preventing hypoglycemia, providing an ongoing energy substrate for muscle contraction to spare or replace dwindling muscle glycogen supplies and thus supporting liver glycogen storage, supporting exercise intensity, uh, maintenance of, of effort, things of that nature. Um, so maintaining blood sugar during prolonged events or other correlative data on blood sugar and performance is effectively all we have uh, from current data on blood glucose monitoring uh, in athletes. So for example, there's a case study on a marathoner who did five different marathons and they were very experienced. And so it showed that during a marathon while wearing a blood glucose monitor, they had a pretty flat blood glucose curve. And you're like, okay. I, <laughs> seems like what you'd want. Seems like what you would want, but we don't know because you know, there wasn't like, oh, they did a sixth marathon and their glycose ver glucose variability was all over the place and they did worse and under the same like ambient conditions. So Okay, seems like flat might be good, but can't really say. And this is also just one individual. Uh, so maybe you could like collect a bunch of carbohydrate availability data based on blood sugar proxies and like come up with an optimal strategy for pre and post workout nutrition or intra workout nutrition. But this has not been tested at all yet, even though this is how it's being marketed enthusiastically. Never bonk again, for example, or like use this to get data so you can optimize your, you know, pre post or intra workout nutrition, but none of this has actually been tested. Uh, so uh, more existing evidence on athletes using continuous glucose monitors. So there's some data in single and multi-day ultra endurance events. So in one particular study, the glucose concentration positively correlated with running speeds in uh, one of the, uh, in a number of the 11 segments that they tested, but they didn't have any data available on how it correlated with overall race time. And so you're like, what do I do with this? just like yeah and still correlational you know you don't have you don't have people like somehow randomized to different blood sugar levels or something and seeing their performance because it could just be like you know if, if somebody has higher like you know adrenaline sympathetic activation their blood sugar is going to be higher but you're also know when you're hyped up like that you tend to perform better so it could yeah. be you know a, a correlational by way of a different mechanism that just yeah. made, made that up just now but that yeah. is a plausible way could be could happen there was another study on two experienced ultramarathon runners. Uh, they both had continuous glucose monitors that they wore the whole time. Uh, and it was a hundred kilometer race. Uh, runner A finished the race in six hours and 51 minutes and had a pretty flat blood glucose curve throughout. Runner B finished the race in eight hours and 56 minutes, so over two hours slower, and was noted to be hypoglycemic, so below 65 uh, milligrams per deciliter for after the 80 kilometer mark. 
and you're like, yep, if I had to predict performance, I would probably want to avoid hypoglycemia. But I don't know the whole point in this study, which you would all additionally want to see is like an alert that reliably correlates with impending hypoglycemia that allows you to strategize carbohydrate intake. They made no mention of like different carbohydrate, like intake strategies. And again, you'd also, like you said, want to know like circulating catecholamine <laughs> concentrations, you know, or like glucocorticoids, did, like lots of different things. Can did runner B fall? Were they cramping? Did they, you know, were they, how did the training go prior to the, th you know, whatever. So again, not really much I can conclude off this other than like, yeah, maybe avoiding hypoglycemia would be good, but it's like, I don't need a continuous glucose monitor to tell me that. Uh, in multi-day, uh, sort of ultra endurance events, they had an adventure race. This is like a five day, uh, sort of test two different teams. Um, and during the five day adventure racing, there was an increase in glycemic variability and more frequency, more frequent periods of low blood glucose levels, but this didn't correlate to any particular performance that was tracked. And so again, you're like, oh, okay, but I don't, I don't really know what to do with this data. Uh, they've also used continuous glucose monitoring to evaluate the efficacy of different carbohydrate loading strategies in cyclists. So basically two different um, like uh, carbohydrate loading strategies. One had way more carbs than the other. They were given at similar intervals. And so the people who got more carbohydrates had higher on average blood glucose values than those who got less carbohydrates. Um, and that was picked up via continuous glucose monitoring, but it really wasn't reflective of any sort of changes in performance other than blood sugar values. And you're like, okay, again, I'm at the same thing. Like, what, what do you do with this? And, and yeah, I, I think, think the, I think the point of this or, or reasonable takeaway is based on knowing some basic exercise physiology, both in the aerobic endurance realm and in the resistance training, strength training realm is that blood glucose availability is not a limiting factor for performance or for adaptation, right? Yeah. So until you get to this hypoglycemic folks, state. Yeah, sure. sure. Then it's, then it's limiting for life, right? Yeah. <laughs> Basically. But, but otherwise, like for the endurance folks, their aerobic capacity is way more, you know, the limiter. And that's why a ton of endurance athletes, they actually monitor, they use like blood lactate monitors, not necessarily continuously, but they do train and check their lactate levels and things like that. And that I can see how that would be more useful to know than glucose when glucose is not limiting. But if your glucose is 50, then yeah, it's limiting for all sorts of things. But so few situations does that come up. And it is quite clear, you know, symptomatically for, for a lot of people when they're approaching that. And so you see people, you know, during a marathon grabbing, grabbing, you know, Gatorades and stuff like that off the sides and chugging it and just keeping themselves within a normal range such that glucose availability is not limiting. Rather, it is still their aerobic capacity. Yeah. I just think you're right. I think overall the relationship between like not only carbohydrate intake, the amount and blood glucose levels, uh, and like just overall energy availability, the relationship between that and like performance is just more complex than like blood sugar higher or lower equals better or worse performance outside of like a hypoglycemic sort of range. I could see a utility, like a use for this in research when you're really just trying to determine if there's a, uh, you know, particular, set of blood glucose values that correlate or using it like with different, uh, exercise protocols to see if there's a differential response, um, amongst a certain population of athletes. Uh, you could also use it for detecting like low energy availability in general, if you were worried about somebody with like red, so the relative energy deficiency sort of thing, or maybe even potentially an eating disorder, like maybe there's characteristic, like signature data patterns that give you that. But as far as like using a continuous glucose monitor to like adjust what you're doing before a workout, after a workout, 
during a workout with respect to nutrition and it reliably correlated performance. I don't see any real signal in the data right now that suggests this is a definite, this is a good investment and good use of your time and good use of your resources. That may change, but just for right now, I'm not sure. Uh, they're also, it's also banned in certain sports. Uh, so for example, um, I believe the, uh, yeah, there's a no needles policy in sport in the Australian Institute of Sport. And so technically in a continuous glucose monitor that has needles. So currently they're, they're banned under that. Also the UCI, uh, which is like the international cycling uh, organization that, uh, governs all cycling sports. They're banned. CGMs are banned. And they said that they didn't want cycling to turn into Formula One. <laughs> where, where at, yeah. Although again, there's a, there's actually a Novo Nordisk team of cyclists. They all have type one diabetes. So presumably they can still use their continuous glucose monitoring. Uh, but yeah, so far we've covered like maybe the limited benefits of continuous glucose monitors in otherwise healthy individuals. What about some of the risks? And so when I asked you about this, Austin, just off the top of your head, you were like, well, it may drive disordered eating, like restricted eating patterns or overall like increase in neurosis around eating. And I certainly think that can be true. And, and, you know, given that people are likely to change their dietary patterns or some of them might with respect to knowing this data, I could see the risk of somebody, you know, oh, well, this particular meal that I had raised my blood sugar uh, on average to like 130 or 140 and this other one, it's 120 to 130. And so I need to do this other dietary pattern even though you and I would both look at those results and be like, yeah, they're both normal, like do whatever you prefer and don't think about it. Uh, so I could see that happening. There's also some data that actual use of CGM in uh, particularly individuals with type one diabetes uh, may identify disordered eating. So there's like, again, these almost pathognomonic signatures of like continuous glucose monitoring values that are like, oh yeah, that indicates a binge eating sort of disorder, or this in indicates uh, some anorexia nervosa or other you know, unwanted eating patterns. And so I could see a benefit and risk on both. Um, the unnecessary restriction, you know, again, trying to change values from, oh, 130 after a meal to 125. It's like, eh, that's a twud. It's a time wasted on useless detail. And then, uh, then there's the cost. It's like, these things aren't cheap. And then the time cost of like evaluating, trying to interpret this stuff. Paying attention to it all the time and worrying about it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as like current recommendations, the American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists came out with a 2021 uh, clinical practice guideline, uh, uh, pretty in-depth on use of continuous glucose monitoring. And there's no mention of using these in otherwise healthy individuals or individuals without either type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, or impaired sort of glucose metabolism. They're, they don't recommend for or against. They just don't even mention it. And so I think, you know, if I had to push, if they asked me, if they're like, Hey, barbell medicine, just quick, could you weigh in on this? I'd be like, yeah, but what about <laughs> maybe just a brief word? So they don't even mention it. Same thing for the American diabetes association. They have an international consensus on use of continuous glucose monitors that came out in 2017, no recommendations for or against the use of individuals, uh, without diabetes or impaired glucose metabolism. So we can't like just point to clinical practice guidelines and say, see, they're recommended against, but still, I just don't know that having all this data actually changes, um, what I would otherwise recommend in an individual is otherwise healthy. I mean, there's just too many nuances in the glucose variability, glucose response. And I just don't know that that actually changes what we would do. And most of the stuff is just untested. Like these hypotheses that, oh, knowing this data in a healthy individual actually changes what you would do, improves outcomes, whether it's sport, whether it's health, they're just 
untested. Yeah, show me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just like if you look, if you were a glucose, a continuous glucose monitor, like manufacturer, and you could prove that wearing one of these for individuals who engage in resistance training or who are involved in endurance sports not only improves performance reliably, but also like here's and here are the strategies that we would like generally recommend. That would be huge. But so far, existing data like fails to show like even a good correlation in performance that's reliable and also like what to do about it. And so I don't know. I see professional golfers wearing these things. I see CrossFitters wearing these things. I see football, you know, professional American football players wearing these things. I'm like, what do you do with this data? And also like if you're a football player or something and you're wearing this on your shoulder or abdomen or upper arm or whatever, and you get smashed. I feel like not, what does that data say? That's what I want to know. Like <laughs> the general shock to the system. So there's still a bunch of practical issues that may limit the use in sport. And then in health, again, I, I don't, really see a big signal for, wow, this really improves outcomes. If you've got an individual who's got type one or type two diabetes, certainly can be useful for managing that. And then ultimately guiding like different behavior changes, particularly if they're the type of person who responds to that, like like type of motivation or that sort of information, but otherwise not really sure of the benefits for health and or performance in those who do not have impaired metabolism. Any other like sort of, you know, like a, like a, what was it? What was uh, Jerry's corner or something? <laughs> I concur. That's all. I concur. <laughs> all right. Good enough for me. All right. So that's episode 221 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Make sure to check out our sponsors. Really appreciate them coming on board. If you want to come to one of our seminars, we'd love to see you. All that stuff is linked in the description below. Special shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining us here on this week's episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. But before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. So we keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness from everyone here at Barbell Medicine. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Hey.